I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And today I'm talking with Dr. Amit Arya and Dr. James Downer, two of the authors of an analysis article on palliative care during this COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Arya is a palliative care physician at Brampton Civic Hospital and has faculty appointments at both McMaster University and the University of Toronto. And James Downer is head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and is a critical care physician at the Ottawa Hospital. They co-authored the article that we're about to talk about with Dr. Sandy Buckman and Dr. Bruno Gagnon, and their article is published in the CMAJ. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Andreas. So maybe we can start, uh, Ahmet, with you know why you've made the case in your article that it is likely that many more patients will need palliative care during this pandemic than usual. Why is that? Well, firstly, we know that there's going to be non-COVID patients, actually, who will still require palliative care. And um, you know, many of us working in palliative care or know about palliative care know that services are often stretched and there's patients who sort of need palliative care and are not receiving it. So that's our existing situation. Um, on top of that, we know with the, with the COVID-19 virus, the population that's most at risk are elderly, frail people. And many of these patients, or some of these patients at least, will have advanced care plans that, you know, sort of say that they don't want CPR, they don't want ventilation, and would rather have comfort at end of life. So these patients will need palliative care, and we expect, uh, you know, definitely a surge of this, of, of this population. Also, I mean, there'll be patients that sort of are intubated and um, will not survive an ICU stay, and therefore the ventilator would be withdrawn. Um, these patients would also need palliative care. And um, unfortunately, I mean, a situation that I think many of us in healthcare and even in the public are quite um, afraid of, and thankfully we're not in this situation yet, is that, you know, due to a sort of triage situation, perhaps there would be patients that could um, potentially survive or have a reasonable chance of survival, but would not be offered a ventilator due to sort of resource scarcity. And these patients would need palliative care too. Yeah, there's also some uh, concern deriving from the fact that many of the patients who are going to be needing palliative care in, a, in this type of a surge environment uh, will be found in places where palliative care is sort of not traditionally uh, very prevalent. So your intensive care unit settings, your emergency department settings, and also uh, long-term care facilities, right? It's paradoxic because, uh, in fact, although there is a surge in the number of people dying, um, uh, there you actually sometimes in, in epidemic periods and pandemic periods actually see a reduction in the utilization of, of traditional palliative care spaces like hospices and palliative care units uh, because of disruptions in transportation and normal planning that, that result in people getting to those places. So the challenge is twofold, not just in the number, but also in the location of, of the patients. So you used the word planning there, James, and, and your article really, I thought, laid out a very practical series of, I think, eight points for planners to think about as they're hopefully now getting ready to manage this increase in palliative care patients. Do you want to just briefly, people can obviously go to the, to the article to look at the details, but briefly summarize your uh, eight points? Yes, sure. So um, from the critical care literature, there is already a fairly well-established framework for how we respond to mass casualty events. The four S's of stuff, staff, space, and systems. So things like equipment and medications, how you prepare your people and how you 
pull in more people into your into your pool of, of, of labor that's responding, uh, the space that you're going to require to do the response, and obviously systems like communication and setting up automated systems that will make your job a little bit easier to do things like order sets in this case. All of that's previously been adapted to the palliative care context, but in this article we also uh, posit a few more uh, elements that should be added. So four more would be sedation. Um, the dealing with the separation that comes from quarantine isolation, uh, helping with communication um, and trying to promote people communicating about goals of care, for example, early. And then finally, uh, spending uh, a special focus on equity, because in moments of surge and strain on the system, uh, whatever uh, inequities in the healthcare system previously existed, uh, those will become uh, further exacerbated. So uh, palliative care is perhaps an opportunity to try to redress uh, some of those inequities. So maybe we could spend a bit of time talking about certainly an area that I personally am really concerned about, and I think we see it more and more in the news, is that um, you know people that live in nursing homes are elderly, they're frail, uh, they're they're clearly at high risk of getting COVID, and, and we've seen that they are getting COVID uh, in our nursing homes despite their best attempts to limit visitors, et cetera. So what should nursing homes do if, if you were the medical or nursing director of a nursing home now? What would you be doing to prepare? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I just want listeners of this podcast to understand who are the people living in these nursing homes and why are they at risk so much? So zooming out a bit, I mean, we really have our sickest seniors uh, generally admitted in these nursing homes. These patients uh, are almost always in, you know, sort of the end stages or the advanced stages of some type of um, life-limiting illness like dementia. And commonly patients have accumulated multiple illnesses by this point. So frailty and multimorbidity are quite common. So these patients are already in their last months to years of life. And at baseline, because um, this is a sector of the healthcare system, which is kind of separated in a way from, you know, from the rest. And as you know, people are kind of, you know, put into these facilities and separated from society, to be honest. So, you know, they don't have much nursing support. There's often a physician on site for the patients, maybe, you know, like once a week to see, you know, their own patients. The PSWs are very stretched and uh, goals of care is really an important thing. You know, we already know that um, roughly about one in five long-term care patients at baseline uh, is admitted into acute care for palliative care. So that's kind of our baseline uh, issues in this sector. So definitely the number one recommendation that, that I would have as a physician who regularly provides consults in long-term care would be to discuss the goals of care. And I can tell you sort of just anecdotally in my own practice providing these palliative care consults, I have been including discussions about um, COVID-19 in my goals of care conversations with patients and their families. And this has to be well documented. Of course, as we suggested in our article, long-term care facilities have to make sure that they have enough medications, uh, you know, sort of stockpiled and sort of um, rather than ordering in a reactive fashion when patients become very ill, they need to kind of stockpile medications now and perhaps using our symptom management kit would be, you know, very helpful as a starting point and collaborating with sort of home care and the hospital, um, you know, services in their area would be very helpful. And also, we need to make sure that everyone in the long-term care facility is trained in terms of how to administer these medications. Um, one particular worry I have, I mean, of course, from a public health perspective, 
Uh, all visitors have been banned, but um, social isolation and separation is going to be a big problem in this sector. I mean, I've seen family members that sort of come in, they bring food, culturally appropriate food on a daily basis for their loved ones. You know, their, their, their parents, for example, with dementia are very much dependent on sort of the, you know, the children coming in and translating and spending time with them. So I think that having um, any type of video conferencing technology or FaceTiming and, you know, that type of thing to keep people connected would be so important in this population. So maybe a couple of follow-up questions. You know, certainly I get the feeling around masks and gowns that there's a, a huge uh, problem with just supply. Where do people get these drugs now to stockpile them? And is everybody else doing that? And is there a shortage? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I, I can just share with you that, you know, everyone um, has to really think about this in advance. I think, uh, you know, the proactive approach about ordering ahead and planning for, uh, you know, as James indicated, where would be, you know, the places where patients with COVID-19 would be most affected would be, uh, you know, essential at this time. And making sure that people have stockpiles of medications, perhaps an order set ready to go would be very important. And making sure that staff is trained on how to administer the medications in a, in a safe way. I mean, even talking about, this is not really, you know, what our article focuses on, but sort of just saying that, um, you know, PPE is very important, not just for, you know, patients receiving um, critical care or emergency care uh, in the hospital, but also upstream in these settings where patients could be, you know, receiving end-of-life care in long-term care or in the community. And that upstream focus on resources in general may help a lot to, um, you know, reduce the burden on the in-hospital resources, which is so important at this time. Yeah, I think in our area here and up in the Ottawa area, we have started to uh, encounter a bit of a problem. Uh, on the one hand, many of the community uh, general practitioners who manage patients in long-term care facilities and in retirement homes have started to order these symptom management kits, so following the advice to, to sort of stockpile and get ready. Unfortunately, it's, it's happening to a degree that uh, the pharmacies are, are running a little low on some of the injectables, and so we're starting to sort of lower the amounts of medications that we're dispensing in these kits. So people still get kits, but, but the kits are a little bit smaller. Part of the problem, of course, is that when, uh, if you don't use the medications in the COVID environment, people are very reluctant to take medications back, even if they could clean them. Uh, and so some of these medications will end up going to waste. So it's a bit of a fine balance. On the one hand, you want to make sure the medications are available, particularly in places where it can be tricky to get them in a hurry. Uh, but you can't you can't overshoot. Otherwise, then there's a there's a shortage for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I've heard actually from our area, and we've encountered some similar challenges, James, is that, you know, some of these supply chains, you know, I don't know all the details, but some of these supply chains run, you know, through the US, where, of course, they have a huge surge of cases right now. And we're all sort of watching this on television. So that could potentially create some problems for us in the stream as well. So what I'm hearing out of this is we better hope that someone above us in the pecking chain uh, is proactively ordering these meds so that we have them stockpiled. Am I hearing that right? Yes, I think it's important to be ready for this. And I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies have now understood this. Certainly, uh, comfort medications are not the only medications that are that are having and experiencing this issue right now. Many of the new antiretrovirals and antivirals that have been previously trialed and have now been trialed in small studies um, are now being ordered uh, across the board at levels that 
that the pharmaceutical industry couldn't hope to sustain for more than a few days. And that's becoming a problem for people who have been taking these medications for a long time. So we're not, we're not the only ones in this boat. Um, I, I think the, the other key thing at this point is to understand that when you stockpile something, it's not stockpiling for one individual or one provider. So palliative care, we work, we should be working as teams and, and working together. So if you, for example, if you order a medication for one person in a retirement facility, um, that, that, that symptom management kit, it could be potentially uh, a resource of medications for anybody in that unit, right? That you're, you're not uh, stockpiling for one person at the expense of any others. You, you talk about training, uh, I'm presuming nurses who perhaps are going to have a little more independence on uh, providing these meds just given the situation. My understanding is that a lot of staff in uh, long-term care facilities are off because they're having a fever or they might be tested for COVID. How do you train these people given how busy they are? Yeah, well, it's very challenging. And of course, the idea that we're going, you know, in, in this current environment, expect people to sit down and take a two hour webinar or, or a big learning module is just not realistic. Uh, we need to be very strategic and focused in what we're trying to teach people. People dying of COVID illness and COVID uh, sort of pneumonia are going to have a fairly predictable pattern, uh, fairly predictable symptoms. And the management of those is not it's not always 100% effective, but it is fairly straightforward. So the things you want to be most concerned about are shortness of breath and shortness of breath as people get worsening pneumonia. Everybody needs to be very comfortable with the idea that it is safe to treat somebody with shortness of breath. To treat somebody for symptomatic dyspnea is not harmful to them. We have a lot of data on this now that you can treat somebody's dyspnea without shortening their life with opioids and sometimes with benzodiazepines if the opioids are not fully effective. Um, what you must remember is that breathing is definitely necessary for life, but shortness of breath is not. It is not a life-saving reflex. It is probably a deleterious overreaction. It is safe to treat shortness of breath, uh, particularly if the patient is, is commenting that they feel short of breath. Yeah. Can I just quickly add one thing that's, um, that's I think, really important, and I hope that will come out of the, our article, is that you know, we really want, uh, you know, politicians and health authorities to look not just at ventilators, which are very important. I mean, we know that we all want more ventilators, more critical care supplies, more staff, but also about palliative care supplies, including medications and staff. And, and, the, and the honest reality is, is that in long-term care, when you have only sort of one nurse looking after 30 patients in the day, and perhaps, you know, that goes to one to 60 at night, I mean, as, as amazing as the nurse might be in terms of providing palliative care, they can only do so much. So we all honestly need to actually redistribute some of our staffing and resources at this time. So let's just briefly move to um, palliative care of patients dying with COVID uh, in institutions. Where should they be managed? Do you think we should plan special wards or what are your, what's your advice on this? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think, uh, you know, as the numbers start to mount, we know that there will be specific dedicated COVID wards for all people. And we have to expect that many of the people admitted to those wards, particularly if they have comorbidities, uh, are going to be dying. Um, I think if you have sufficient numbers of people in that situation, uh, a dedicated palliative COVID ward would be a potentially a very good idea. Uh, it can be potentially a bit quieter. Perhaps you can separate patients a bit more, give them a bit more peace, uh, which is very helpful. Um, that said, I think that the ability to move people around hospitals and find extra wards will be limited. 
um, also understand that the our normal pathways of referral and transfer in in uh, in times of pandemic are are heavily disrupted. So the idea that we could you know have somebody uh, assessed an emergency, you decide there for palliative care, and then expect them to be quickly transferred over to a palliative care unit or a hospice that that's just not a realistic expectation. Our transportation systems will be overloaded with people being moved around for critical care needs, are and many of these facilities will not be willing to take people who are COVID positive if they are not COVID positive themselves for fear of spreading the virus. So I think we have to assume that uh, the sort of shelter in place or treat in place approach is going to be the norm for most people. Um, we will still be able to need to be able to provide palliative care pretty much anywhere as well. Um, some special considerations if we were to make such a ward would be that, you know, having standardized order sets and make sure that our staff are comfortable and empowered to treat people without necessarily calling a physician all the time. So having a lot of, you know, uh, automatic algorithms for how to give medications. If you notice the medications, you're giving a lot of PRN medications, increasing the dose and adding new, uh, adding standing medications or infusions when people require a certain amount. The other thing to think about is that normally uh, when you're, expect, you're expecting to be able to have a lot of people be able to visit and be at the, with the person at the time of death, that's not going to happen in a COVID environment. There will be very limited uh, visiting from family members, maybe one or two people. All of those people need to be trained in how to put on their own PPE uh, and, and uh, be at the bedside. So things like video calling for relatives may be a real big advantage. And for those who maybe can't get relatives in because it's just too challenging or perhaps their relatives are sick too, uh, getting support from allied health staff to relieve their sense of isolation. These are all really important considerations because we, you know, our ability to deliver what we normally want to deliver uh, as, a, as a palliative care team is going to be severely impaired in a COVID environment. What about support, psychological support for the staff? Uh, I mean, I practice palliative care and certainly we have a lot of people dying, but my sense is, you know, if, if I was working on a palliative care COVID ward, the number of deaths even per day, might start getting psychologically overwhelming. Well, you know, one thing about palliative care is that, I mean, we know that there's sort of a fear, and it's kind of implied at this time of this COVID-19 pandemic, that patients who who don't receive life-saving treatment may not receive care at all. And this is kind of the story that's, you know, kind of being put forth in the media. People aren't really talking about palliative care. You know, we feel as much as they should. So I think having a good approach to actually reduce suffering for these patients, which we provided in our paper, would help staff a lot um, in terms of their own moral distress and in terms of their burnout. So they know that all patients are receiving the best care and we know that there are studies that show that palliative care in itself reduces mortal distress and reduces uh, or, or builds staff resiliency. I mean, the other part of that that we need to sort of, I think, say is that at the time of a pandemic, we know that it will not be palliative care specialists who will be looking after all these patients. I mean, it's already not the case now. And one of our favorite sort of sayings is always to say that palliative care is, you know, everyone's responsibility. And Really, this is the time to kind of realize that saying where this is going to be a collective sort of responsibility of, of all the healthcare teams that are working in the hospital and outside the hospital. Thanks for that answer. And it's actually it's a reassuring and I think a genuine one, because when I practice palliative care, I did often have family members and even some of my own colleagues saying, like, how do you do it? And my answer was, you know what? Um, almost everybody I see, I do think, or I see, that our team sees, I do think they benefit from our involvement and that feels good. Um, 
anything that we haven't covered, I would encourage people to uh, read your article, which I think is a just a terrific uh, guideline for people who are actually going to be providing palliative care, but also for those that are planning it. And you have, you know, a guide of a script that could be used to talk to uh, uh, patients with COVID. Two scripts, actually. One uh, for the situation we're in now, where someone might have COVID and they're trying to decide whether they want to be aggressively treated on a ventilator. And the other for the scenario that we hope doesn't happen, but might, where someone who now who would normally be offered a ventilator is not going to be offered a ventilator just because of resource constraints. So I recommend that to uh, listeners uh, to have a look at. Any final comments from either of you two? I just wanted to say big thanks to you, Andreas, and to the CMAJ for taking this article on and processing it so quickly to get it out there. We're hoping that it will be helpful to frontline providers and to palliative care teams that are trying to plan for this. This is truly one of the most, I think, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest crises that palliative care will face in the coming years. It's a very unique crisis with unique considerations. Having uh, this type of attention paid to palliative care and these issues, I think, hopefully will go a long way to helping us be prepared, but also to convincing and reassuring uh, the public that, that there's a plan and that we are that everyone will be cared for. Thanks, James. Uh, so on that uh, note, I'd uh, just like to thank uh, both of you. Ahmed Arya, palliative care doc at Brampton Civic Hospital, and James Downer uh, from the University of Ottawa. Thanks both very much. Thanks so much, Andreas. Thanks for having us.